Amen, amen. Thank you, Evan. Well, we have a treat today because Pastor Tony Dees of Providence Baptist Church in Clayhatchie, Alabama is with us. Tony is a good friend. He is a fellow alum, a graduate of BCF. He is also just a couple classes away from receiving his Master of Arts in Discipleship from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. But you know, really, educated pastors are a dime a dozen. I mean, you can't throw a chicken bone without hitting one somewhere. But anointed and gifted preachers are as scarce as hen's teeth. So we have a proverbial hen's tooth with, the, with us today. Because Tony is one of those anointed and, and gifted preachers. Hey, and he also married pretty good too. Uh, he has with him his sister in Christ and partner in matrimony, Dr. Jenna Dees. So Grace Church, I welcome Tony and Jenna to Bonifay. I think I just flipped my mic on. Am I good? I'm going to scoot this thing back. I, uh, I don't, uh, I'm close to my wife all week. I don't need to be close to her when I preach. And uh, she may kick me uh, if I say something I don't need to. Uh, well, guys, listen, I, um, let me just say very briefly um, how much of an honor it is to be here. I don't have a clue how Timothy felt uh, when he preached and taught in the presence of Paul sitting in the congregation, but I do today. Uh, I'm telling you, I know exactly how Timothy felt. I, um, to get to sit and, um, and, uh, and preach, uh, just to study God's Word with my brothers and sisters in Christ and, um, is an honor. But to do it with um, a very dear friend of mine who I've watched for many years. Some he probably knew I watched. Others he didn't know I was watching him. But uh, Brother Richie Allen. And uh, so I know what it means to sit. Uh, as Timothy sat in, in, in Paul's presence. And uh, so for that, I'm very grateful. Um, I'm not going to talk about myself because I have so much I want to I tell you today. Um, open your Bibles to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17. Uh, guys, God, God has a way. Now, now what Brother Richie said is, 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 is pretty good um, about preachers, but I, I'm going to tell you, anybody can teach a book. I mean, you can get lost people to teach a book to you. Uh, you can get a lost preacher that can give a good presentation. Uh, but there, throughout my ministry, there have been times that God had just burned a message in my heart. And, um, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I've tried to preach a different sermon today, but there's no way I could not preach Jeremiah 17. Uh, so, guys, it's just where my heart is. I... Um, I, um, I've never really shied away from preaching God's Word. I, I, I try to preach it unapologetically, whether if I'm popular or not. And, uh, but Jeremiah 17 is just a, is a passage of Scripture that is buried deep into my heart. And here's some of the reasons why. While I understand Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001, was an extremely unforgettable day. Over 3,000 Americans lost their lives. 
And everybody talked about yesterday as I saw posts all over online, remembering that day, remembering that day. And as I hear this morning, not forgetting yesterday, I'm coming to you as a young pastor that I cannot forget September the 13th of 2001. September the 13th of two, uh, September the 12th, 13th, and the days after that, here's what I noticed. I will never forget that Wednesday when I woke up. I turned the television on, and I saw a God begin to use something traumatic for the church's good and the nation's good and for His glory. I began to listen to news media till all they did was want to cut people down. Anybody watch news media today? And I watched news media who cut people down and gossiped about each other and undermined the very president we're called to pray for. I'd watch news media hit their knees and begin to beg the church for prayer. We begin to beg the church for peace and comfort and answers that only God could give. So I watched news media turn their eyes to God. I watched churches who had made their worship services about a song rather than salvation, a hymn rather than hymn book, and baptisms non-existent. And I watched churches flood their doors and worship centers as everybody all around America began to refocus and reprioritize their living. I watched baptistries dust the dust off and be filled again whenever they once was a dry and weary land. I watched church houses become a house of prayer instead of gossip centers. I watched prayer meetings be about prayer, praying for the lost rather than praying for Uncle Sam's sore toe. I really watched churches begin to reprioritize some things. All in all, I guess if I could summarize it, I'd say I watched a church and a nation return to her first love. While many will remember 9-11, this young pastor will never forget 9-12. But my fear is, in the preaching on down, my fear is as we've once again left our first love. That's my fear. I, I, um, I, I get to pastor and I absolutely love to travel and preach. And, and uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor by calling and preacher by calling. I never turn down an opportunity to preach God's word. And uh, as I travel and I, and, I, and I get to be in many churches, guys, I, I get to see those arguments. Most church members are more concerned with songbooks than salvations. We're more concerned with books or anything other than that nature than baptisms. We're concerned about things that has no eternal value. And I think Pastor Johnny Hunt probably said it best when Brother Johnny Hunt said in the middle of all this COVID stuff going on, so if you don't like the statement, email him. Uh, don't email me. Uh, Pastor Johnny Hunt said, we spend more time in our prayer meetings praying our 90-year-olds out of heaven instead of praying our 15-year-olds out of hell. We've left our first love. I'm going to talk to you about a time in Israel's history that left their first love, but they were fully convinced, fully convinced they were right where they were supposed to be. They were deceived. But if anybody would have asked them, they were right where they were supposed to be. As a matter of fact, when God began to rain His judgment on them, the people of Israel stepped back and they said, Jeremiah, will you please tell me what we've done wrong? 
They're so convinced that the way they're going is right. They had no idea they were doing wrong. So I want to talk to you about the deceptive of the human heart. The deception that the human heart can bring. Now anybody will tell you in order to understand God's word, historical context is first and foremost. Uh, When somebody tells you that Bible study begins with asking yourself the question, what does this verse mean to me? You look at them and you say, Brother Tony said, that's a lie. Because it is. The Bible was not written to you. The Bible was written for you. And we got to find out what it was written, who it was written to, and why. So let me give you just a brief outline of Jeremiah if you love Bible study. Some people say the Bible's boring. You don't know the Bible I get to read. In the first 24 chapters of Jeremiah, Jeremiah preaches constantly about a warning. Guys, if you don't turn, if you don't recognize your heart, God is coming with judgment. I mean, Jeremiah constantly preaches this. I I couldn't imagine being Jeremiah. So uh, you're in 17, but I'm going to start there and I want to show you the warning. First 24 chapters, a warning. And Jeremiah concludes that warning in chapter 25. And Jeremiah says, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land the Lord has given to you and your fathers. Do not go after gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with work of your hands. Then, there's a timing word, if you'll do this, then I will not do harm to you. Yet you've not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might have provoked me to anger with the work of your hands and do harm. Therefore, the word therefore means as a result of what your response is. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I'll send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Every Bible I own, my servants underlined. My dear folks, we better realize God is a God who is sovereign over Satan. Satan is a servant of the Lord. And you might say, well, how is that? Because we serve a God so good that evil, the evilness of man and Satan works to bring about the good of his church in the highest glory of God. That is a sovereign God. And praise God, that's a promise for us we can claim. Even in the evil, Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20, Guys, you meant it for evil against me, but I serve a God who means it for my good and will bring it to my good and his glory. I mean, that's enough to shout hallelujah this morning. If you belong to Jesus. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to be my servant. I'm going to let the enemy rise. By the way, you do realize that it wasn't because the enemy was stronger than Israel. It was because Israel was so sinful. And God just pulled back. God just pulled his hand of protection back. How does a nation become a harlot? Isaiah? How does this thing crumble? You let God pull his hand back from us. You let God remove his protection. And the enemy rises. The enemy cannot be stronger than God's people unless God removes his protection. He says, I'll devote them to destruction and I'll make them a horror and a hissing and everlasting desolation. Verse 10 says, moreover, I'll banish them from, the, from the, the laughter will be gone. Gladness will be gone. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding and the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall be a ruin and a waste. And these nations, guys, you'll serve King of Babylon for 70 years. So you know what this is. He's He's prophesying about a 70-year captivity because Israel becomes so sinful and deceived. They had just forgotten 
about where it is. So let me tell you a little bit practical of what's going on. And it is so much like the American church today. It's unreal. You see, I'm not here to talk to you about the United States. I'm here to talk to you about the American church. Now, now I'm not saying Israel's the church, but there's good principles that can be pulled out of Israel, God's chosen people in the church. They're not the same, but there's good principles there. So what's going on is it's Monday through Saturday, so to speak. They're worshiping other idols. But they come to church and they worship God. So during the week they worship other idols and they come to church and we put on a, a mask and, and we worship God, raise our hands high, say amen. And so, so during the week I got one life. On Sunday I have another life. And God says, I'm tired of it. God says, I've, I've had an, enough of it. And let me tell you, this is so much like our culture today, it's scary. You ever been in a, in a room where the preacher starts talking about the person he used to be? Our Christians start talking about who you used to be before Jesus, and we start giggling at it. Boy, you're a rambler, and we giggle at it. Sin entertains us. For instance, and I know I'm talking to a young crowd today, and this won't win me any friends, but what we watch on television, and God asked me a question as I studied this passage of Scripture. Tony, what, what if your kids acted like the entertainment you watch? Would you still watch it? What, what, what if our young folks acted like the very entertainment we watch day in and day out? Would you still watch it? No, we're entertained by sin. We let sin entertain us. We listen to it, we watch it. Here's a statement for you, my first truth statement, just as an introduction. You and I will never become brokenhearted over the lostness of our communities while at the same time being enjoyed, being entertained day in, day out, night and day by the very lostness of our communities. Let me say that again. You and I will never be brokenhearted over the lostness of our communities while at the same time enjoying being entertained day in and day night, day out, by the very lostness of our communities. Jeremiah had gotten to a time in his preaching. Israel had left their first love. Boy, I love chapter 16 leading up to chapter 17. I normally don't do as this much Bible reading, but guys, we've got to read chapter 16. And if you don't sit there in your pew and just begin to weep for a moment, I don't know what else is going to shake the church up. This is Israel. Here's, here's what Jeremiah said. The word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, Jeremiah. You better not have sons or daughters. You better not have them in this place. For the Lord says concerning the sons and daughters who were born in this place and concerning the mothers who born them and fathers who fathered them. Guys, look, look at this. They shall die of deadly diseases. They, they won't even be lamented, nor will they even be buried. There are not going to be any funerals. They shall be as dung. That's garbage. They'll be as garbage on the surface of the ground. Your loved ones laying in the streets. 
They shall perish by the sword and by famine. And look at this. Their dead bodies will be food for birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Your, your very loved ones will be laid out in the streets. And they, they'll, be, they'll be food for birds and, and the animals will come and feed on them. For thus says the Lord, don't enter the house of the morning. Preacher, Jeremiah, you don't even have to visit. You don't, don't, don't console these people. Don't visit these people. Don't spend time with them. Don't lament or grieve for them. For I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord. Both great and small will die in this land. They, they won't be buried. No one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. In other words, it's just the, the language of the Jews here in, in, in Israel that they will not even be mourned or lamented for their family. Verse 7, no one shall break bread of the mourner to comfort for the dead, no, nor shall anyone give him a cup of consolation to drink. Verse 8, you shall not go into the house of the feasting and sit with them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will silence in this place. Before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth, the laughter and the gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, there ain't going to be no more. When you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Verse 10, don't skip it. Verse 10, all of their family is dying. Birds are eating their loved ones and animals are eating. And here's the question. Jeremiah, will, will you tell me why the Lord is so mad with us? Their sin had become so deceptive, they didn't even know why the Lord was doing what they're doing. You can worship God on Sunday and worship our pagans during the week, and not even realize that God is angry with us. Not even realize it. Your heart can become so deceptive. You know what scares me to death? I look at the Pharisees in the New Testament, and the Pharisees who claimed to love God so much nailed the very God they claimed to love to a cross and was deceived they were doing the right thing. Guys, that's deceptive. That is deception that comes from a very wicked heart. Here's the question to ponder as we dive into Jeremiah 17, where I want to stay the rest of the morning. Here's a question I want us to ponder as the American church. Has the American church forgot about a God who can get mad about sin? There's our question to ponder. Has, has the American church, has Tony, has Tony forgot about a God who can get mad about sin in my life? So you've got your Bibles in Jeremiah 17. You've got some historical context of what's going on. Let's read what Jeremiah has to say. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond is engraved on the tablet of their heart. In other words, guys, these folks are so sinful, it's engraved in their wicked hearts. It is stuck there. And on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars, uh, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from the heritage that I gave to you, and I'll make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, 
Here's our main verses we're going to spend time. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord, and then it's illustrated. It's illustrated for us. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Verse 7 is a contrast. Blessed is the man. That word literally can be translated joyful or happy or satisfied, joy-filled. Is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree. Here's the illustration. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For, it, for, it, uh, for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah asked. I, the Lord, such the heart and I test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Guys, let's, let's jump off into this. And I really want to spend some time and I just want to swim around here for a minute. Let's swim around in Jeremiah 17. Here's truth number one. If you take, I'm a note taker. Trusting in yourself brings forth death. Trusting in yourself brings forth death. Look at with me in verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The word deceitful is a very unique translated word there in the Hebrew language. It's translated in Hosea 6, 8. It's translated stained. In other words, when they're walking there, they talk about the roads that are stained with blood. In Isaiah 40, it talks about, it's translated a rough ground. Uh, it's a similar word used in Jehu's tricks by which he slaughtered the servants of Baal in 2 Kings 10, 19 as he deceives them and and brings them into where he wants them, and he slaughters the servants of Baal. He deceives them. The root of this word is used for Satan and how he attacks Eve's offspring in Genesis 3. The language used here to describe this deceiving, if you know anything about Jacob, it's used as Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's name, people say it means trickster, but let's, let's, let's be a little more accurate to the translation. It literally means to grab by the heel. Uh, so when Jacob's born, uh, Esau, uh, Esau's born, Jacob's born with him as he's holding on the heel of his brother. It literally means to attack from behind, to trick somebody into doing what you want them to do. When he says your heart is deceitful, guys, you've got a heart that is desperately wicked. I've got a heart and, and my heart works against what God's doing in me. I have holy schizophrenia. What's schizophrenia is it's two people living in the same body. And my dear folks, when I got saved, I have holy schizophrenia. When I was lost, the only thing Tony wanted to do is what I wanted to do. When I first went into ministry, I gave God my 20-year plan. God, here's what I'll never do. One, I'll never do youth ministry. Two, I'll never go on a blind date. Three, I'll never have a long-distance relationship. Boy, do we need to have lunch together today. Started three years youth ministry. God says, Tony, if you're going to marry your wife, you're going to go on a blind date with her. Met Jenna on a blind date. Said, I'd never do a long-distance relationship. And God said, that's fine. I'm going to send Jenna to Mobile, and she's going to do a doctor of pharmacy. I, there's only one good thing come out of Auburn University, one good drug dealer, and God gave her to me. 
did all three that I said I'd never do. Holy schizophrenia is is the fact that I've got to realize I've got a deceitful, wicked heart in me and my heart wants what it wants and it's never Jesus. It's never Jesus. I hear people say, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you made the decision to follow Jesus. No, no, listen to me. And I don't want to upset anybody's theology. I'm so glad that Jesus found me. That's what I'm glad for. Because... The Tony D's that he once was, I promise you, was never hunting Jesus. As a matter of fact, when I got saved in Bethel Baptist Church, I didn't even go hunting Jesus then. I went because a 16-year-old girl invited me and she was singing. Even in my deception, Christ Jesus broke through. Some of you are not here this morning for Jesus. But Jesus is here for you. He's here for you. So the word deceptive, guys, it means our heart's working against us. I got holy schizophrenia. Boy, I wake up some mornings, I have people ask me, and and, and this is beside the point, I'm not here to boast about myself, I have people ask me, Tony, why do you get up so early? You know the reason I get up so early? Because if I don't get up early enough and let the Holy Spirit chase this little monkey down and run around inside of me, I'll screw things up. I'll mess things up. I got a marriage that depends on me spending time with Jesus. I'm going to see lost folks during the day. And what I've noticed is, is your words and your actions will either confuse the gospel or to clarify it for a lost world. And we're confusing it often. I've got to spend time early in the mornings, not at night. People say, well, preacher, you're just meddling. No, no, I'm not meddling. What good is it for me to mess everything up and then spend time with Jesus? How about I spend time with Him and then I won't mess everything up? You with me? My heart's deceptive. It deceives me. Even when I'm saved, I got holy schizophrenia. My heart in the mornings, if I don't, if I don't remind myself, Tony, that old person died with Jesus. That old boy will try to resurrect himself. And I don't need you seeing Tony. I need you seeing Jesus. You with me? It's deceptive. It's deceptive. Here's what the American church has made themselves in the gospel. The American church pastors stand all the time and say, Son, if you want to be saved, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. And here's how you can invite Jesus into your heart. And guys, I'm not here playing on your words. But here's what I'm so grateful that Jesus did for me. Jesus says, Tony, certainly to Nicodemus, He says, I'm not coming into your heart. Bless God, he didn't come to my sin-stained, wicked-filled heart. Ezekiel 36 says that when Jesus comes, he'll give you a new one. He'll, He'll put a new heart in you. This heart's deceptive. Bless God, I don't want him coming into this deceptive heart. I want to be born again, born from the above, two spiritual parents. And Nicodemus is trying to figure this out. As, as your mom and dad, born of water, born of the spirit, uh, born of the flesh, Jesus says, no, you need two spiritual uh, parents born from above. The spirit of God and the word of God births a child of God. And I'm fully convinced that the word of God combined with the spirit of God is sufficient for the people of God. So the spirit of God and the Word of God births the child of God and bless God that when, when, when Christ comes, salvation, salvation is not about, salvation is not about Jesus walking with me. 
How many, how, how many of our prayers on our knees in the morning we spend asking God to bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. And sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder, does God even inhabit the prayers of Tony D's? Salvation is not about, it's not about Jesus walking with me. Salvation is about me walking with Jesus. It's about me realizing my heart is deceptive. It's translated in other places. It's translated a bumpy, rough road. That road looks good. How many of us know sin looks good? That road looks good, but our deceitful heart will always end into a dead end. Don't be deceived. As I think about Matthew 7, as Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount, here's His conclusion to a sermon. He's sitting before a group of people and, and I can just see Jesus very quiet, monotoned, and, and he just says, guys, all of you, all of you are going to appear before me one day. And many of you are going to say, Jesus, did I not prophesy in your name? They were preachers. Did I not teach a good sermon? Prophesy. Did I not do good works? They led other people to Jesus. Did I not do good works? Did I not teach Sunday school? It's a prophesying, tell others what God said. Did I not do miracles? In other words, did the Spirit not bless my ministry? It's the greatest deception. And here's what Jesus said. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Here's what I wrote in my Bibles. Or in, in all of my Bibles, literally Bibles. Here's what I wrote down. It's not about if I know Jesus. Because they called Him Lord, Lord. They knew Him. It's not about if I know Jesus. It's about if Jesus knows me. It's not about if I know Jesus. It's about if Jesus knows me. I'm convinced in America everybody knows Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know them? The question is, have I surrendered my life to Jesus so that He could put a new spirit in me? He can put a new heart in me? I preached a sermon one time at Providence and I answered emails for the whole next week, Brother Richie. I'm talking the whole next week. And the sermon I preached was, is you and I can't serve Jesus until we let Him serve us. And the email was, Preacher, you had the audacity to say that Jesus served me. I said, no. Scriptures had the audacity to say that Jesus came to seek and to serve that which was lost. How does He serve us? Ezekiel 36 is very clear that He came to put a new heart in you. And God spoke very clear to me, Tony D's, don't you dare sell your family and sell your ministry for the sake of Jesus Christ. Preachers, young preachers, I don't have much wisdom. But here's what I would tell you. You better not ever be deceived and to love your ministry more than Jesus because that's trusting in yourself. And there's been many times I could talk to you about loving your ministry more than Jesus. I'm just coming out of one of the darkest walks of my life where Jesus spoke very little to me for several months. I'm studying, I'm preaching, I'm spending time day in and day out. I'm talking, pressing in as close as I can. 
And Jesus spoke very clear to me, Tony, you're loving your ministry more than Jesus. Don't be deceived, folks. Your heart is wicked. It'll lead you wrong every time. He says it's, it's wicked, verse 9. Verse 5 says, verse 5 says it's cursed. Verse 5 says your life is cursed when you trust in men. So when you trust in yourself and you turn your hearts away from the Lord, you begin to idolize yourself. You've now become the God of your own life. And that equals, verse 6, it equals a stunted Christian. He says an illustration here. He said he's like a shrub in a desert. And you shall not see any good come from it. You shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness. It's an uninhabited, salty, salty land. So, so he says you're going to be stunted. Stunted means there's going to be no growth. Oh, you, you appear like it. You appear like it, but there's no growth. I remember a time in church history in, in the New Testament said that they, 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 they had the, the appearance of godliness, but yet there were no godliness. I'm watching churches right now crumble from the inside out. If there's ever been a time that churches should be exploding, should be now. And I'm watching more leave the church than ever came into the church. Deceptive. It's deceived. It causes stunted growth when we begin to trust in ourselves. We've got enough men-centered preaching today. It's trusting in ourselves, And it equals no growth. It equals no hope because the desert and will dry a weary land, a desert's barren wilderness. I love the description here. It is uninhabited, salty land. And most would agree that Jeremiah had in mind the Dead Sea. In other words, well, absolutely no life lives. You trust in yourself, dear folks. You'll be living life, but you won't be living it for Jesus. It's dry. It's uninhabited. There's nothing, no life there. So here's what I wrote as truth number three. There's not enough room in the throne room of your heart for you and Jesus. One or the other will have priority. There's there's not enough room in the throne room of Tony's heart for me and for Jesus. One or the other will have priority. You know what's so deceptive? If you got just a minute, you know what is so deceptive? This is uh-huh, preacher. This is no, I don't care. Let me tell you what is so deceptive. Satan wants us to think that we're in charge. You ever heard a sinner say, boy, I can quit that when I get ready? You know the Bible says that you and I will always be slaves. We're never the master. For instance, a lost person's dead in his transgressions and sins. He's bent and broken by sin. You're bent towards it. It's what you always do. It's what you always care to do. You're bent towards it and you're broken by it. You don't have any power over sin. But what Satan wants us to do is, boy, I can control this. When old David goes up on the housetop, David looks across there to Bathsheba, and he says, oh, I'm just going to look. I've got, I, I, I can control this. You're bent and broken by sin. But when Jesus comes and gives you a new heart, guess what? You've got a new master. You're still a slave. My dear folks, we've got to realize as Christians, I was bought with a price, and it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I don't tell God what I'm going to do. God tells Tony what he's going to do. I'm bought with a price. I'm bought with a price. There's not enough room in the throne room of your heart for you and Jesus. Let me make another truth statement before we continue. Number four. This means that your joy and contentment, your peace and fulfillment, 
is directly proportionate to how close you walk with Jesus. Your joy, your contentment, your peace in life is directly proportionate to how close you walk with Jesus. Guys, that means there's no substitute for time spent with Jesus. Your job, spending time with your kids, a football game. Boy, in the South, we'll sell our soul for a football. We'll sell our soul for a baseball. There's no substitute for time spent with Jesus. My mom lost her mother. Mom cannot, is struggling. She's been dead about 10 years and still cannot get over it. And here's what everybody tells her. Oh, Gail, it's just going to take time. It's just going to take time. It's just going to take time. And I finally told my mom, I said, Mom, I'm tired of everybody lying to you. And God gave me one of the profound truths when it comes to not trusting in myself, but trusting in God. And this is what God told me to tell my mother. Very clear. I felt like it was a word for my mom. I've used it often. Time alone cannot heal everything. But time spent with Jesus can heal anything. Time alone cannot heal everything, folks. But time spent with Jesus can heal absolutely everything. I'm fully convinced that God's Word is not meant to speak to every area of my life. I'm fully convinced that God's Word is not going to tell you how to deal with dying with cancer. You're not going to find a scripture and a verse there. Let me tell you the purpose of God's Word. You ready? The purpose of God's Word is that I'm I'm to look into it as a mirror. And I'm to see God and His love for me through Jesus Christ. And I'm to see the righteousness of God as it's lived out for Christ. And I approach God's Word not for knowledge, but for transformation. And if I can be transformed into the very one I read about, I can live life and do it perfectly because He was found without sin. And I can face anything God puts in my way like Jesus. See why we need the Word of God? We must devour the word as if our life depends on it because it does. And we must share the word as if others' life depends on it because it does. That is not original with me. It's David Platt. Guys, we we must devour it. So he says, you trust in yourself. You're deceived, wicked heart, cursed, stunted. Let me make one more statement here. And we got to get to some encouraging words before we close. When it comes to trusting in myself, boy, God had to teach me a hard lesson, Brother Rich. God had to teach me, Tony, it's not about your comfort. It's not about your convenience. But I've called you to live a dangerous life for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your convenience. But salvation is about God calling us to live dangerous lives for the sake of following Jesus. I'll never forget the most heart-wrenching Begging God, God, you sent me to the wrong place was when I walked up to my WMU director. And I won't say what church it was. I walked up to my WMU director, Women's Mission Union, for you young folks that don't have a clue what WMU is. And I said, hey, look, I'm really tired of just writing checks and putting them in the offering plate. Let me commend Grace Church. If you want to see how healthy a church is, you don't count how many is in the pew. You count how many is leaving the pew to go on mission. That's how healthy a church is. So I talked to my WMU director, and it's about this time Haiti was really having a hard time. And, and I said, look, I, I really don't want to just write a check and put it in the offering plate. I want us to get involved in Haiti. 
And I'll never forget what my WMU director said. I went home to Jenna, and we just began to, I just began to weep in my heart. She said, Tony, we'll go anywhere in the world, but I will not go to Haiti. Brother Rich, I went home, and y'all just don't know Tony yet. That little boy inside of me is running around. He's trying to get me in trouble. And I said, I, I told my WMU, I said, listen, I'm going to go home. I'm going to pray for you, and I did. You know what I started praying? God, would you do whatever it takes to send that old woman to Haiti? I did. God, you, you do whatever it takes to send that old woman to Haiti. Because, bless God, we better realize that we're not inviting Jesus to walk with us. He's inviting us to walk with Him. He's bought us with a price. God, I'll do whatever, whatever you want me to do. That's salvation. That's salvation. Our hearts has deceived us into thinking that this life is about us. And Jeremiah said, buddy, your deceptive heart is fixing to cause this whole nation to bottom up. It's about to call this whole nation to bottom up. There's, a time in, there's two times in Israel's history that I'm aware of they attended more funerals than birthday parties, and both of them put Israel on their knees. Now, guys, I don't know what COVID's doing here or there or over yonder, but I tell you what I've noticed. I tell you what I noticed. The average church families attending more funerals than birthday parties. Folks, it's time to get on our knees. I'm, a, I'm fully convinced the church will be on its knees before it's over. I'm fully convinced. God said, I'm going to break this trusting in yourself. God said, you can worship your other idols, but this is what he said, you won't do it in my land. I'm going to move you out. You, you can worship other idols. You, you can go over yonder and do it. Is yonder a word in Bonifay? You can go over there and do it, but God said, you're not going to do it in the land that I give you. Christians, hear me well. You can worship your other idols, but you won't do it in the temple that God bought with a price, and that's your soul. But it disciplines good for the believer. You won't do it here, God says. I'm going to get your attention. Bless God, how many of us know He can get our attention? He can get our attention. So number two, there's some truths there for number one, trusting in a deceptive heart. But if you trust in yourself, it'll bring forth death. Here's number two. Trusting in the Lord brings forth life. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, blessed is the man, happy is he, content, joy-filled, purpose-driven is what you can apply there, the principle of this word blessed. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Not in the Lord, your trust is the Lord. David said, salvation belongs to the Lord. My deliverance belongs to the Lord. My purpose is the Lord. Here's what I wrote in my Bible, truth number one. Peace is not a circumstance. Peace is a person, and his name is Jesus. It's not a circumstance whose trust is the Lord. Not in the Lord. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Boy, when we get to a place in our life and we begin to trusting in the Lord and we get to a place in the life Jesus is all we got, that's a good place to be because that's all you need. It's just a hard lesson learned. All right, so what bringing, what's, what's, the, what's the encouragement here? I've got 10 minutes to tell you the encouragement. Trusting in the Lord brings forth life. You see, the difference in these two people is not that hard times didn't come to the one trusting in the Lord. Notice, notice it's the same desert. Verse 8, he's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream, does not fear when heat comes. Guys, heat's still coming to the believer. 
It's not that they're in a different place. It's not that the heat's not coming. They're in the same place. They're in the same desert. Here's good business advice. Good business advice is, boy, you better not put all your eggs in one basket. That's good business advice. But folks, that's terrible theology. All my eggs is in Christ's basket. In other words, guys, the heat's coming. They're in the same desert. The difference is, the difference is, is what is the tree connected to? Where does he put his roots at that makes the difference? So here's, here's kind of the illustration he goes. And it's this idea of continuous, never ending. I've labeled it verse 8, the first part. He's like a tree planted by the water, sends out its roots by the stream. So number one, guys, there's continuous life to the person who trusts in Christ. There's continuous life. John 10 is extremely very clear with the, with the sheep. The thief's purpose is to come in and steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, guys, my purpose is to give them rich and satisfying life. And verse 28 says, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I mean, this you plant your life in Jesus, there's a continuous overflowing of life that never ends. So let me make a statement that I see so confused in a lot of our preaching. For the believer, eternal life starts the moment you're converted, not the moment you die. So from eternal life, positional sanctification means I stand before God as if I've never sinned before. When I trust in the Lord, sinners out there, if, if, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you'll decide in your heart and, and you'll surrender your life to Jesus and let Him come in and forgive you of your sins and give you a new life and give you the peace that surpasses understanding that comes from repentance... If you'll do that, positionally, you'll stand before God today as if you've never sinned before. So that means as Jesus forgives me for past, present, and all of my future sins, that means right now I stand before God the Father, positionally, I stand before God as if I've always obeyed before. I stand before Him positionally clean. And there's not a sin in all of creation can take me positionally out of being completely clean before God. Boy, if the church can't shout about that, we're in a bad place. We stand before God the Father. If I died right now, if you died as a believer in Christ, you die right now, you'll stand before God and you'll stand before Him completely clean. Here's the biggest lie you're ever told as a believer. Boy, you'll pay for that when you die. Bless God, I won't if Jesus did. I, guys, you won't pay for it. All of your sin has been paid for in full on the cross. Positionally, I stand before God as if I've never sinned before. However, practically, I call it practical sanctification. God's desires for me to be in practice what I am already in position. That's my daily walk with Him. Positionally, completely clean. He desires for me to be in my practice as I am already in my position. So, Tony, what's that got to do with this? Here's what it's got to do with. Continuous life means... My soul is growing closer to perfection every day. Every day. My body's dying. Boy, when I was 21, I could go without sleep. Guys, Brother Richie Allen kept me out till 10.30 last night. And I don't know. I like not to made it this morning. My, my, my body is not as good as it once was. It's dying and going to a grave. But my soul is being perfected. Christ is continuing to give life and continuing to give life and continuing to give life. You walk with Christ and He'll continue to give 
life. But he also says continuous joy in the second part there. He says he's like a tree planted by the water. He sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. In other words, I don't care how hot it's going to get. Boy, my roots is in the stream. I don't care how hot it gets because I'm always going to get the nourishment that I need. I'm always going to get the water that I need to produce fruit. Guys, that means you and I, as believers, we have absolutely everything we need to live a godly life. First Peter reminds us of that. If you're rooted in Jesus, all right, now put your thinking caps back on for me for a moment. Before salvation, you're dead in transgressions and sins. You're bent and broken by sin. I'm bent towards it. It's what I always want to do. I'm broken by it. I have no control over it. I'm bent and broken. I am totally depraved in sin. I'm bent towards it, and that's all I want to do. After Jesus, I'm bent towards it, but I'm not broken by it. I'm bent towards it. That little boy in me wants wants to do things I shouldn't. Remember, holy schizophrenia, there's a little boy in me that's bent towards sin. He wants to do it. And there's even desires there, but, 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 but I, I have the power in me called the Holy Spirit that I can look at my desires and submit myself to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from me. So as a believer, guys, there's a, there's a high calling on your life. And you have the power to do it. So I'm trusting in the Lord, bring forth life. There's continuous life, it's continuous joy. I love the term in John 4 and the woman at the well when Jesus says, look, if you drink of this water... That water is going to run dry, but if you drink of the water in which I give, it wells up into you a spring of life. That word wells up in you is a present active uh, uh, part, uh, uh, passive verb, which means I'm being acted upon. So active verb, Tony D's hits the ball. Passive verb, the ball hits Tony in the head. So this word here is a passive verb, which literally means when I put my trust in the Lord, I'm not doing it, the Holy Spirit's doing it. It's creating in me a well of overflowing joy in my life, and the Holy Spirit does it for me as I trust in the Lord. Well, how many of us know for by grace we're saved through faith? It's not of ourselves. It's only, it's only the grace of God. So there's continuous joy. 8C is good. The third part of verse 8, he says, And for its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought. Boy, that means i got continuous strength. So young preachers, here's a, here's a one-liner that carried me through my ministry so far, and I choose to cling to it. You ready? The grace, the, I mean, the, the call of God will not carry Tony D's where the grace of God cannot sustain him. The call of God will not carry Tony D's. Well, the grace of God cannot sustain him. And you put your your name there. Wherever God calls you, there's already grace there to sustain you. It's continuous strength if I plant myself in the Lord. I'm encouraged. I see many note takers out there. I don't have time, but I would encourage you to jot down Psalm 121 there next to your notes. Go back and read it. Psalm 121 talks about the continuous strength that comes from the Lord as I put my trust and I root myself in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And then letter D there, it also brings continuous stability continuous stability it says in guys i'm not anxious in the year of drought you know what concerns me about covid it's not that the world went absolutely crazy what concerns me about covid is i watch a church go absolutely crazy just con- completely lose its stability i mean just completely you root yourself in christ there's complete stability 
And then lastly, he says there's a continuous fruit. Now, the word continuous is important. This thing's unending. It's constantly giving to me as I root myself in Jesus, constantly. The last part of it says, and it's not anxious for the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jesus echoes this in John 15. He says, if you'll abide in me, and I in you. He talks about that you will bear much, much fruit. John 15 verse 5 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, but how prone I am to forget it. It says, yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will, 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 will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Say nothing with me. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I have to remind myself day in and day out, Tony, you can do absolutely nothing without Jesus Christ today. You, you will not love your wife the way you're supposed to without Jesus today. You will not be the pastor God's called you to be without Jesus today. You will not be a witness for me without Jesus Christ today. Tony D's, you're bent towards sin, but you're not broken by it. Your heart is deceptive. He'll lead you the wrong way. You know my greatest enemy in life is Tony. If I can just get him where he needs to be, I can walk with Jesus. And I can't do that. But the Holy Spirit can do it in me. That's the reason Paul says you need to work out what's been worked in. It's already been worked in. You need to work it out. Matthew 6.33 is my, is my life verse in closing. I think it summarizes this entire sermon. And I think it's the most, and I don't want to preach two sermons, but I think it's the most misinterpreted scriptures and the most mispreached scriptures in all of creation. So I close with this illustration. I had a preacher come. A visiting preacher came and preached Matthew 6. And Brother Rich is going, I didn't preach Matthew 6, so it's not me. How a preacher come and preach Matthew 6? You know the context. Matthew 6 is the disciples is worried about their food, they're worried about their drink, they're worried about what clothes they're going to wear, they're worried about their shelter. And Jesus is finally just getting tired of it. And Jesus says, look, guys, forget all of that. Forget all of that. But if you'll seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, all of these things will be added to you. And I had a preacher stand in my pulpit, and this is what he said. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about where you're going to lay your head. Don't worry about all of these things, because if you'll trust Christ, He'll give them all to you. And I like to have crawled under my chair. Guys, you better tune in to me just for a moment. I like to have crawled under my chair. I go up to that preacher afterward, and I said, man, listen to me. Let me ask you a question. You just told my folks that if I trust in Christ, I don't have to worry about what I'm eating, what I'm drinking, where I'm going to sleep. I don't have to worry about none of that because he's going to give them to me. But I said, look, i got to show you a picture on my phone. It was a little Ethiopian girl who had starved to death and she was laying down prostrate on the ground with her head in her hands and a buzzard sitting right there fixing to eat her. And you just told my people that if you trust in God, you'll never miss a meal. He'll provide your shelter. He'll provide what you're going to wear. You just lied to my folks. What is these things when Jesus says? Here's what I think he's talking about. 
Because there's a verse there in Matthew 6 that says this. Is life more than these? Life is more than what I'm eating and drinking. Life is more than what I'm going to wear and where I'm going to sleep. Life is about the kingdom of heaven. Life's about knowing Jesus. Life's about walking with Him and knowing God and going where He's in. So Jesus says, don't worry about none of that stuff. You seek my kingdom and walk with me and I'll give you what you need. What is He talking about? Here's what I think He's talking about. I think Jesus says, if you'll walk with me, I'll supply everything you need to fulfill God's plan and purpose for your life, even if it takes you to your death. Folks, I'm, I plead with you. Guys, we need Christians, soldiers of Christ, who's not trusting in themselves. We need warriors if we've ever needed them who says, I don't care about this world, I don't care about what I eat, I don't care about what I drink, I don't care about my shelter. All I care about is following God and knowing God and walking after Christ and walking with Christ. And I trust, I trust that wherever He leads me, He's going to supply everything I need, even if it takes me to my deathbed. Because death for the believer is something better, not something worse. There's an old hymn writer that said, My hope is built on nothing less than Christ's blood and righteousness. My simple question to you is, what's God doing in your life? Pastors want to spend some time in application, and I'm fully convinced the Holy Spirit supplied it already. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to turn it over to Brother Richie. Guys, I am extremely grateful that you've allowed me to come and share what's in my heart. I, uh, I'm telling you, I, I wanted to preach something different, but I couldn't. I, it's just what's there. And uh, Jeremiah 17, I, I hope that your roots are dug deep into Christ and nothing else. Father, God, it has been so good. God, it's been so good just to come and, God, really just to get to meet more of my family. God, some more brothers and sisters in Christ that I'd, I really didn't know I had. and So God, it's extremely good to come and to study your word together. God, it's good to be reminded as we look around us in the culture and the American church that we live in. God, it's good to be reminded that our hearts are, guys, our hearts are deceptive. They're cursed by sin. They always lead us to sin, they always lead us in the wrong direction. But Father, we are extremely grateful that you sent your son Jesus Christ to stand in our very place and receive the full payment of our sin. God, not so you can come and live in this broken, sin-filled heart, but God, that, you, that we can die with you and be raised to live a new life. So, Father, may I begin seeing that walking with you is not bad to good. It's dead to, a, dead to life. You've come to give us new hearts. Come to give us a new life. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would do what only you can do in this room. And that's to change a heart. Only you can change a heart. 
Father, would you encourage, would you convict, would you build up? God, we're going to give you praise and, and glory and honor. You are the only one that's worthy of our praise. A football's not worthy. A baseball's not worthy. God, you're the, you're the only one worthy of our praise. And God, we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Tony D's to make you want to love Christ a little bit more, won't he? I tell you, and I think Dane will tell you as well, we are missionaries, and because of COVID, we've been home for more than a year. And he and I have had this conversation, but it sure is good to be home. And self began to rise up. That little boy began to run around, and we began to think, do we really want to go back? And both of us are, but I think both of us would say we've been going back, looking back over our shoulder. And Tony D today made me want to throw in the towel and say, no more of that foolishness. He's worth it. So what is he asking of you today? Is he asking you to surrender? Don't invite me in your old heart. Let me give you a new one. What is he asking of you? What have you not surrendered? What have you been trusting in yourself for? Because that will just keep you in that desert longer than you want to stay there. As our band plays, if the Lord's said something to you in Jesus' name, you just act on it. I'll be right here. Colin's right here. We'd love to pray with you. God's speaking to you about being a part of a church that wants to sin more than it keeps. We'd love to talk to you about it. If you've never been born again, he's never given you a new heart and you're still trying to reform that old one and you're losing the battle, come and let us talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. But in Jesus' name, don't put it off. If you put it off today, it'll be easier to put it off tomorrow too. Deal with it while it's fresh on your heart. Would you stand with us, please?